Finding your way to a balanced way of living is the key to health and happiness. Each week on Choosing the Balanced Life with Diabetes, you'll hear tips and tools for a happier and healthier life. Here's your host, Anita Westlake. People of diabetes may only be focusing on their diets and eating foods that will ensure that they keep their blood sugars at a good level. Well, that's great, but we may be forgetting other very important parts of our body. For example, the liver. My guest, Brendan Gukron, is a researcher in liver disease, and I'm delighted to have him. We're going to discuss the importance of the liver, the part it plays when it comes to diabetes, and how we can keep our livers healthy. So thanks for joining me today, um, Brendan. I'm really looking forward to talking about, believe it or not, the liver. Well, I appreciate it, and thank you very much for having me. So, Brennan and I talk about the liver and the importance it plays in our overall health and even managing our diabetes. And this is what he says about it. If I go out and I talk to physicians, especially the aggressive ones, they know, aside from the brain, the liver is really one of the most important organs in the body. As a diabetic, you hear about your pancreas. And your beta cells that produce insulin, well, we talk about that because they're oh so very important, but we don't talk about the liver. And when we had a little chat, I had shared with you that I had read a little bit about the liver and something that they called fatty liver. And I thought, ooh, this does not sound good. And apparently they say that 75%, and I guess we're going to be modest about that figure, but 75% of type 2 diabetics have this. And they alluded to the fact that 100% of type 1 diabetics have this. Now, this was on a site that I read, and it seemed to be quite credible. Um, but that really was awful. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it was not a good thing to hear. It was terrifying, actually. Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, a real good point. I don't uh, necessarily want to instill fear because the good news is once you're aware of it, it's a relatively easy thing to solve. So that's the good news. But um, as far as the typical pathology of it, you know, we, we can head into, into those uh, areas. Yeah, the statistics on liver disease, you know, we're talking about uh, a third to a fourth of, of the nation, which those are huge numbers. Um, clearly, there's a direct correlation between uh, liver disease and diabetes. I uh, as we spoke before, uh, I um, was doing a little bit of research on some of the uh, current uh, studies, pulled up a study from 2010, uh, was conducted down at the uh, University of Texas. And this is a typical, um, uh, something that happens within research is that we don't always know the mechanism, but we uh, can statistically pull out a correlation. And sometimes we get the cause and effect incorrect. And in this case, that's exactly what happened. This was only five years ago. So they had found out that um, diabetics had a very, very high incidence of cirrhosis and liver failure, much higher than the general population. So this scientific researcher's conclusion was, you know, you uh, you get the diabetes and then you get the liver disease. And we know uh, from uh, just you know, a bounty of other research that it's exactly the opposite. <laughs> but we can see where that correlation, where that mistake can happen, and you can see that mistake within somebody who has a PhD. So clearly, this is a um, complicated subject. Cirrhosis of the liver. 
Yes. Immediately, and I know many people that I would immediately associate that with alcoholism. <laughs> so right. it's a very let's, good point. let's clear this up. What is really, when someone said you have cirrhosis of the liver, what does that mean? It doesn't mean necessarily that you've drank too much alcohol through your lifetime. No, definitely not. Um, and this is a really important point because, uh, you know, we get a lot of patients, uh, when they come in and they say, look, you know, I have, uh, you know, varying degrees of, of liver disease and, and I can go into which those stages are and define them for you. Um, they invariably, they run into a doctor, the doctor will diagnose them and say, look, you have fatty liver disease, you have cirrhosis, you have, you know, wherever you are on that um, spectrum. And they say, the first thing you ought to do is stop drinking. And I'm telling you, I have a lot of <laughs> a lot of patients who have never touched alcohol, and they look at the doctor like the doctor has three heads. And um, if you look at liver disease as a whole in the country, so you begin with uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease at one end of the spectrum. Then you go to NASH, which is one step above that. Then you go to fibrosis, which means you have... Um, a lot more uh, pancreatic, excuse me, not pancreatic, a lot more hepatic cells within the liver have died off. And then what you end up having is scar tissue, making uh, fibrous tissue within the liver. One step above that is cirrhosis. You can't really reverse uh, liver damage once you're in that state. And one more uh, stage beyond that is, is full-on liver uh, failure. So those are the state. that's the spectrum. So when we back down that spectrum, um, of the individuals who have liver disease, 75% of them huge, uh, have non-alcoholic huge. fatty liver disease. <laughs> so so wow. if we're talking about a third of the nation, so that's over 100 million people, 75% of them, 75 million people have liver disease to some extent, and it is not alcohol-induced, as you had pointed out. It is food-induced. So because our food uh, chain, the food supply has changed so dramatically in the last uh, 20, 30, even 15 years, um, we're seeing a, a huge spike in this. And it is all toxin-driven. And, uh, you know, if, if you want, I can jump into that and, and discuss that a bit further. But those are some pretty dramatic statistics. Well, I'm just... what. The good news I take from this is there's quite a lot we can do to repair our livers. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And maintain healthy um, livers. I, that's the good news I'm taking from it. But what I'd like just to clear up a little bit is what does it mean to have a fatty or have, sorry, fatty liver disease? What does that, what does that entail? Great, yeah, great question. So um, the sort of the textbook definition of a fatty liver is a liver that is uh, at or beyond 5% fat. So when you take a look at the liver, the liver is made up of many different um, components. Uh, the base component are called hepatic cells. Uh, and when you have, essentially when you have a buildup of toxins in the liver, the liver doesn't uh, have the ability to neutralize those toxins. It will go ahead and create fat cells to store the toxins so that they can be broken down later. But when later never comes, you get a buildup of these fat cells. And if you have enough of these fat cells building up, it can actually start to uh, inhibit blood flow, nutrient flow, 
And so the hepatic cells within the liver literally get starved and they die. And really, the liver is taking a beating. <laughs> yes, right, right, absolutely. When it comes yes. to diabetes, the liver is taking a beating, it sounds like. Yes, yes, and yeah. The, the, you know, the glucose in itself, I mean, we're going to say carbs because carb is glucose, but or the body converts it to glucose. Absolutely. But, but really, if we have too much of it, it's going to be stored by the liver. And then beyond there, yeah. you know, once yeah. the liver is full, then what? What kind of pressure yeah. is this putting on us? Exactly. And now you can see why you're in a high-risk category if you have diabetes. Now, uh, typically uh, with type... So this is when I, I go out and I um, uh, speak to either physicians or professionals in the medical uh, community. They will... Um, very consistently ask me, how am I supposed to recognize somebody with liver disease? And this is what I always tell them. If somebody comes to you and they have trouble controlling their blood sugars uh, as an indication of pre-diabetic or diabetes, that is typically your candidate. So you can see how, how the communities, they, you know, they, they walk stride and stride. There's got to be something we can do to support our livers, to stop oh, this from happening or even reverse it. Yes. And I would say, uh, of course, this is one of the main reasons why I got into this, uh, this industry. It's liver supplements are, um, are really important. And the reason I say this is the pharmaceutical industry has not found uh, anything you know, of substance, yes, they'll probably give you uh, metformin, but metformin is really more for, for diabetic patients. And uh, the breakdown of metformin, it's a drug, so it does cause some damage in the liver. So you see how this is sort of, uh, there's, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to be doing it. You really need to be taking it naturally. So, you know, liver supplements will typically have uh, things like um, psilocybin, which is the active molecule in milk thistle. Everybody associates milk thistle with cleaning out their liver. It's important, there's no doubt about it. Um, there are also what they call methylating agents like uh, SAMe and MSM and glutathione. Very important. So if you were to take those, that would be extremely um, proficient and efficient at uh, removing a lot of the toxins in the liver. So that uh, phase two, there's, there's two uh, phases within the liver. The phase two is the one that transforms the toxins from fat-soluble to water-soluble, and then it rolls right out of your body, uh, basically in one of three ways. It's sweat, bile, uh, and urine. So that's how, that's how you can safeguard your liver. But there are also daily things that we can do naturally um, first thing in the morning, what I do is I wake up warm cup of, of uh, water with some lemon in it, and that citrus gets the uh, bile ducts going. So it's kind of like uh, warming up a car before you before you go out for the for the day, and that's really important because that bile, aside from having um, uh, components in it that break down fat, which of course is really important, so you can metabolize fat. It also has toxins in it from, you know, the, the previous uh, hours or whatever of metabolism so that you can remove those from your body uh, and those get dumped out into your um, small and large intestine. So that's a great way to start off your day. Um, the other thing uh, that uh, we had mentioned uh, in, in talking uh, was um, gelatin uh, and bone broth. 
because the pathology of liver disease is typically the diet breaks down or removes your microbiome, your gut is now uh, become somewhat perforated. And through that perforation, toxins flow and have to be filtered by the liver. If you can stop the enemies at the gate, in other words, repair your gut, those epithelial cells that make up your gut, boy, that really uh, makes a big difference. So gelatin, because it has constituents of collagen, elastin, and other um, nutrients that are really important in epithelial cell repair, is really critical. You know, you go out, buy that, throw a little in your shape during during the day, whatever, and you are good to go. Or bone broth, you know, uh, make a bone broth that has the exact same constituents in it. Uh, that's really healthy for for gut health. And you mean bone broth, so it's it's a um, meat based, not this vegetable broth. Or uh, f- what about fish broth for bones? Yeah, fish broth is fine too. Again, yeah, it's it's that um, it's the connective tissue, it's the bones, it's you know those are the things that have the collagen and the elastin in it and the other um, components that make up um, you know the reparative stuff for for epithelial cells. Absolutely, yeah, vegetable broth is not going to do it for you. So it has to be a bone broth. When you say gelatin, how are we going to get this gelatin? Because gelatin can have sugar in it. Now that would be, and I don't like artificial sweetness. Oh, great question. So how yeah, are we going to no. get this gelatin? And, you know, you just made a very good point. The artificial sugars are not recognized by your body. So when we're talking about damage to the liver, if you're taking artificial uh, uh, sugars to avoid, you know, uh, impacting um, you know, the, the diabetic effects of the blood glucose cycle, you're actually uh, putting a toxin into your liver, which it now has to remove. So you definitely want to stay away from that. When we're talking about gelatin, it's a very good point. I prefer uh, Great Lakes makes a makes a wonderful gelatin. It's very clean. Uh, for those of you who are Jewish, it's kosher. Um, it has no sugars in it, and uh, I just add it to a shake, and that's what I recommend to to uh, clients that come in. And it's called. It's made by Great Lakes. Great Lakes, yeah, they're a great company out of uh, Illinois. And uh, I tell you, I send so many customers to them, I should get a commission for this. But uh, <laughs> it's a wonderful product. Uh, and when uh, we get clients who are, are really bad, so, you know, we'll give them, you know, the liver supplements and we'll tell them to go on the gelatin. It really helps. And this is definitely not, you know, the, the Jello brand gelatin you'll get, you know, at the local grocery store. Uh, it's not the same thing. So beyond the gelatin, the beef broth, and the warm water with lemon, what else do you recommend? Yep. Uh, The constituents that you ought to look at when you're picking up uh, a supplement, for instance, um, you know, you want to make sure that it's got uh, milk thistle in it. Uh, You want to make sure that it has a a choline a product in there as well. Phosphatidylcholine is is one of those that's very good. Uh, berberine is extremely important. That's also a very good uh, ingredient for those of us who have diabetes. So it does a number of different things there. Berberine. Berberine. How, yeah. How do you spell that? B e r b e r i n e. And I'll tell you that is one of. Um, you know, when I go out and I speak to physicians who are in this field, that's one of their go-to favorites. 
especially naturopaths uh, and osteopathic doctors. They they love uh, berberine. And how do we? Get I would this? say they almost overprescribe it. What's that? How do we get this? And how does it help our sugar? Like, is it a natural so, substance from a plant or? Yeah, it, it, it is a natural supplement, um, and it's isolated from, uh, it's, I believe it's a, pl- a plant-based, and it is a reparative for uh, all kinds of different things. Uh, it's a reparative for hepatic cells. Um, it's an antioxidant, a very strong antioxidant. It's used by all the cells in the body. Um, it's uh, good at increasing sensitivity to insulin. It's also good for repairing hepatic cells. So I, that it uh, it's very useful in multiple um, metabolic pathways within the body, and I think that's one of the main reasons why. So this is just it's, a, it's sort of a, a go-to no-brainer for them. You know, it's like a ten W forty for a mechanic. Can you overdo it and have too much of it, which is not a good thing either, right? Can can you reach the point at which berberine is uh, toxic? I am sure you probably can, but uh, I've seen physicians put, uh, you know, patients on 5,000 milligrams a day uh, for extended periods of time, and, and they don't seem to have any negative um, side effects. Now, again, you know, when we talk about toxicity in the body, we're talking about what's the organ that's really breaking it down? It's the liver. And does berberine have a beneficial effect on liver? It does. So and it, it kicks it helps to kick it into that phase two conjugation that that removes toxins. So uh, can you uh, take too much? Um, probably, but I've seen people take a lot of it uh, without any negative side effects, which is a nice thing to see. What else can we do? Yep. So uh, of course we have to stay away from the carbs and the sugars, and I know that's a difficult thing. And you and I had talked about that previously as well. Um, but let me throw in this little caveat here. When people are trying to get over carb and sugar cravings, one of the things that I typically um, tell them to do is to incorporate fermented um, vegetables, uh, be it uh, pickles or, uh, you know, whatever you want to do. It doesn't sauerkraut. matter. If it's sour, yes, yeah, sauerkraut is an excellent one. It decreases the cravings for sweets. And I think what is happening, so there have been a number of different studies that show that uh, your your intestine, your flora, are actually, you know, they, they call it the, the second brain. It's actually the one that's driving a lot of your cravings uh, for amino acids, for various nutrients and vitamins, and for, for carbs and sugar. Now, your vagus nerve, which is attached to uh, your small intestine, is a direct connect to the midpoint of your brain. And this is where a lot of the signaling takes place. So it's one of these questions of who is, who is it the, the dog wagging the tail or the ta- tail wagging the dog? So when you have a breakdown of your natural bi- uh, microbiome, so let's say you took some antibiotics and you just sort of decimate what's going on down there in your small intestine, what grows back? is really important, which is why whenever somebody goes on uh, antibiotic, you need to be taking probiotics, fermented foods, that kind of stuff. Um, because typically what likes to, to grab hold in there is candida. Because uh, the candida are not that susceptible to antibiotics. So you've essentially removed the competition and candida end up uh, coming in and, and creating problems. Candida um, secretes... Um, 
uh, aldehydes that break down the gut, and that's one of the reasons why people have leaky gut. But the reason I bring it up is because candida drives sugar and carb cravings. And there's a number of different studies that show this, that when you reduce candida um, populations within the small intestine, you reduce people's uh, inclination for uh, carb and sugar cravings. So I just wanted to bring that up as sort of one of those things. Well, that cleared up quite a bit because when you read about um, different diets and ways, of course, to lose weight, one of the questions that comes up now and again is, do you suffer from candida? You have to fix that first and then go on a diet. Right. Really, right. it sounds like they kind of go hand in hand. It's not about fixing that first. It's about looking at the whole system, really, in my opinion. Oh, I'm glad you said that. Yes, absolutely. Because then it's we just chase things. Approach. You know, shining one little light in, in an area without looking at how it all works. And in some cases, right. like diabetes, it's important. We, have, we do have to get the sugars down. Okay, so we've dealt with that. But then once that's dealt with, let's go beyond that. Right, exactly. And I think you had mentioned the other day that um, you put oregano oil in your water. Yes. And that is an excellent way of removing candida. Um, You know, in some cases uh, where candida buildup is is particularly um, resistant, you do need sort of a wide spectrum uh, of of different supplements to to remove the candida because they spore. So let's say you eat perfectly now, only organic, you know, you've removed a lot of the carbs and the sugar from your diet, but 10 years ago you were not eating very well. Well, those candida are still there. If you haven't gotten rid of them actively, they spore and they sit there. So um, they're really, because it's a yeast, it's a sort of a really difficult thing to try and get rid of. Um, not impossible. You just have to actively do it. That's all. So how long could this take? For instance, even I really make an effort to and I, eat well. Who's to say I don't have it or I had it 20 years ago when it was, you know, there wasn't so much awareness and I was eating well, but maybe not as well and as diligent about things as I am now. So how long could it be before we could get rid of this? I, I do take oregano oil, but I don't do it every day. Is that something yeah. we should be doing every day? Uh, it's certainly something that I would strongly consider doing if you've just had a lot of sugars and carbs. That's a definite. Um, if I have uh, a dessert or something, uh, you know, I usually try to follow it up with, a, with some water and some oregano. So that sort of curbs it. In terms of, you know, how long does it take to remove that? It's very different for for each individual because what we're talking about uh, is uh, on the lumen side of the stomach uh, and the small intestine, a very complex array and community of of, uh, bacteria and virus and yeast. And um, if you have... So we're talking about a balance. So if you're consistently eating uh, good foods, if you're consistently introducing um, a probiotic, whether it be supplements or whether it be in the food, then it's a little easier to get rid of that candida because what you're doing is they're competing for the space, the terrain in your, in your, in your uh, digestive tract. Then if you start to introduce uh, things that kill off candida, well, then the other, um, you know, the other community ends up moving right in. So then you can get rid of it rather quickly. I've seen people struggle with it for, you know, a year. I've also seen people, um, you know, take supplement for a month and get rid of it. So it really depends on the individual. Now, Candida, is there a test that we can take to, to see if we actually have this? <laughs> yeah. 
one of the most popular questions. Uh, and I have not yet seen a, a test out there that is very definitive. Uh, I know a lot of people, they, they use, you know, the spit test and that gives you, uh, I've never seen a false positive. I've, I've seen plenty of false negatives. Um, you know, individuals who get, uh, yeast infections within, um, you know, some regularity, people who have, uh, you know, um, infections under their fingernails or that kind of stuff with, you know, some degree of regularity. And that's all indications. People who get sick with, with some regularity, um, you know, a lot of our diseases end up coming from our stomach, uh, in small intestine. So, so for instance, um, you know, and this is uh, sort of the typical metabolic syndrome cascade. And then I'll, I'll get back to, you know, what we can do to, to correct these things. Right. Um, so we talked about diet breakdown uh, of the microbiome and then leaky gut. Uh, when you have that flow, you get to the, the chronic inflammation, right? Right. Um, then you, you have uh, these toxins flowing into the liver. The adrenal glands are... If there is, if the inflammation takes place for too long a period of time, uh, and it's just draining the body, draining the body of T cells and B cells and other constituents within the immune system, the adrenal gland will proactively start to secrete cortisol. Now, if your listeners are aware, cortisol is secreted in the morning, they get you up, and then they go way down so that you can fall asleep at night, and that's your sleep cycle. Well, the cortisol also um, tamps down the immune system. So now what you have is you have leaky gut. So you have virus and bacteria coming through the leaky gut. The immune system has been told to stand down. So now you have these uh, virus and bacteria floating around in your body promoting disease. You're not able to sleep as well because your cortisol levels are thrown off. People will be suffering from adrenal fatigue and you're not able to repair a lot of, have a lot of the, the body cells at night because of this sleep uh, interruption. So you see how this is, you know, people who get diseases all the time, where this is coming from, it's all coming from this, uh, what they call dysbiosis in the uh, small intestine. So again, gut health, super important. Well, leaky gut is just something that I know that we can't have a, we don't have a measurement or a test for it, but wow, is it ever super important to take care of our intestines, well, and not have leaky gut. Do the best we can, yeah. and you can fix it. We uh, in a previous episode we did a, a show dedicated to leaky gut, and they even exactly. attribute it to weight gain. And let me go a, a step further. We're talking about solutions. You know, everybody needs to be eating organic, non-GMO foods, uh, and the right fats. And let me go a step beyond that. One of the reasons people ought to be doing that, um, when the conversation of GMOs come up, when <clears throat> what Monsanto and other companies are really doing is they're introducing a gene into a plant so that their extremely toxic pesticides don't kill the plant, but they kill all the other plants and all the other insects on the farmland. How do they do that? Well, they have to saturate the plants and the soil to make sure that they kill everything else that don't compete with the plant that has this gene. So Monsanto, you might remember them, they're the ones that created Agent Orange, and Agent Orange is a deforestation uh, um, compound, and we would never think of using that anymore because we're, we're very sure of what, what the consequences well, are there. 
Actually, maybe mm-hmm. I'll, let's talk about that just for a second. Agent, is it Agent? Agent Orange, yeah. What is that exactly? Yep. So back in uh, the time when uh, the U.S. was uh, had invaded Vietnam, the issue with um, getting into that country and sort of finding out where the enemy was, they were very good at hiding. Uh, it was a it was a very rough terrain, lots of trees. And they had a difficult time, the soldiers had a very difficult time going through it. So what they would do is they would load up Agent Orange onto planes and drop it from above. And Agent Orange would land on the trees and essentially deforest uh, entire swaths of land. So now the soldiers could go right through it. There was no place for the Vietnamese to hide. And it was an easier war that way. They also used napalm and so forth. But the problem was is that they found out that in addition to Agent Orange deforested, you know, they would uh, prevent the trees from growing leaves, and they would all drop, essentially the trees would die. But the problem is that our own soldiers ended up inhaling this stuff, and they came down with terrible diseases, um, cancer all over the place, tumors of the brain, liver, uh, pancreas, just everywhere. So um, it was banned. The problem is, is that Monsanto has now come up with Roundup, and some of these same issues are within these um, chemical pesticides. For instance, glyphosate. Glyphosate is one of the components uh, in Roundup that gets doused on these GMO plants and has scientifically been found to perforate the um, small intestine of, of humans. So... You ingest the, the GMO uh, plant, you take in these toxins, it perforates your small intestine, you get leaky gut from it, you get these rush of toxins, and now you start inhibiting the one organ that's um, you know, responsible for removing them. It's, it's a real problem. Well, here you're trying to eat healthy, and you're eating vegetables, but if they've been modified, if they're GMO foods, they're not helping you yeah. at all. Right. That's why I I don't mean to scare people, but eat organic. Uh, You know, if you can plant something in your own backyard, that's really the only way around it. And don't use, well, they put a a limit on pesticides, but really stay away from them, period. If you can, absolutely, absolutely. Now, again, you know, you don't necessarily have to be a purist. Your liver is there because it knows that you're going to take some toxins in, just you can't overdo it. Um, You know, nowadays, there are a lot of people that take um, liver supplements just as a general maintenance because, you know, we have, uh, we've got toxins in our uh, toothpaste, in our shampoos, in our soaps, uh, in the makeup, um, you know, as well as uh, our food chain. Um, You know, a lot of the fats that that are used in cooking, um, whether you go out to a restaurant, uh, if you uh, control it at the grocery store. You're ingesting some of them. There, there's a guideline. And it will have a stamp, and it will say that it's, it is GMO free, which is yes, very, very important. important point. Yeah, it's a typically a little square. It says non-GMO, and it's got a uh, like a purple butterfly on it, and that's the certification organization for non-GMOs. And beyond that. You know, when it comes to fresh food, because this is in packaged foods, we're talking about the labeling. But when it comes to fresh food, you want to try to get organic or, as you said, grow it yourself. And hopefully you're getting heirloom seeds and using good quality earth. 
yeah. and you can avoid a lot of that right there. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. So we've talked about the GMO and we've said what it is because a lot of people I don't real I really don't think pay attention. It's just an acronym. GMO, GMO. Well, what is that? Oh, well, whatever. And it gets lost. So I'm glad we cleared that up. What else can we do? Um, yeah, well, some of the other things um, that I've noticed in health food stores, uh, particularly, and I don't, I don't know if you've, spoke, I'm sure you've uh, touched on this in, in uh, um, prior sessions, uh, substitutes for sugar. For instance, health food stores love to put agave on the shelves. Have you seen this? I've used agave. Okay. So now gonna... <laughs> maybe I'm using the wrong thing, but I've I've used them in some raw foods. It, when I say use yep. them, maybe a teaspoon in an entire tray of raw, yep. you know, protein bars, which are all made of nuts. I've used agave, and I, I will admit I sure. have used it. No, no, that, that and believe me, this is a very, very common. You know, I will say, quote unquote, miss out there, is that agave is better than uh, high fructose corn syrup. And the um, science behind this is, of course, we, we know how high fructose corn syrup comes about. They take the corn, um, they uh, extract the um, fructose from it, they uh, evaporate um, the, essentially, it's, it's like the meal, and then it's concentrated to a, a high degree, high fructose corn syrup. Agave is the agave plant is essentially the exact same process, and they're extracting fructose. And so what you're, what uh, the food industry has, has figured out is high fructose corn syrup, people are too smart to be buying this stuff. So we're going to get it. We're going to get the fructose from another source. The problem is, is it's the same thing. Fructose is fructose. The, and the issue with agave as a source is that it actually has a higher glycemic index, which means it gives you a greater spike. So believe it or not, people trying to avoid high fructose corn syrup have actually done themselves a little bit of a disservice in going to something that could is potentially worse. Now, agave is less GMO-ish than corn, so you are avoiding that piece of it, which is good. Um, but you probably want to avoid it in, in total. Go if you want to use some something sweet, you know, um, your cane sugars or, or your honeys or something like that. They're much better. So your raw honey, let's say, um, is would be much better than agave. Oh, it's ten times better. I mean, and cane aside sugar. from the fact, yes. I mean, it's, the honey is fantastic. Your body recognizes it. It's got anti-inflammatories. It has uh, uh, antibiotics in it. It's got um, antifungals in it. I mean, and it's it's the only food that I know of that you can put on the shelf, and obviously you're not going to pick it up 3,000 years later, but it will still be good. So you know, is that any indication of, of how uh, resistant it is to wow. uh, microbes and molds and that kind of stuff? It's just it's a wonderful superfood. Now, it's funny, uh, somebody said to me oh, a few years back that they had bought a chocolate bar and instead of having refined sugars in it, they said, oh, I need it has agave. Now, I didn't have any of the chocolate bar and I guess they forgot to bring it and it got just forgot about it. I didn't ever try it. But sure. from what you're telling me, really, what was the difference? It wasn't lower in uh, sugar, perhaps, on the effect of a diabetic. It was just a different sort of sugar. 
Right. It's a different source of fructose. And it really is the fructose that's dangerous. Um, there is a physician, uh, who a great research physician at the University of California, Berkeley, and he his whole life is spent researching fructose. And rightly so, he has mapped out the metabolism uh, within the liver. Fructose follows the exact same metabolism uh, as alcohol. So when you take in pure fructose, um, there's a slightly smaller percentage of it that gets used by other cells um, for the benefit of the body. The vast majority of it goes through the exact same chemical path as alcohol with the exact same byproducts with the exact same damage. So, uh, and then now people are going to say, well, can I eat my fruit? I mean, should I fructose, eat my fruit yeah. that has fructose in it? Fruit that has fructose in it, which is almost everything, um, those things, because there's fiber there and it's slowing down the absorption of the fructose, that uh, seems to have a much more beneficial effect. Um, but again, you know, if, if you are an individual who likes oranges and you throw down 20 oranges a day, you are going to have this semi-alcohol type syndrome with your liver. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, don't overdo it, I guess. You know, it's very important to take in, um, you know, fruits. Very important. But especially with somebody who has diabetes, you know, there's a, it's a double-edged sword. It is a double-edged sword. And my biggest beef is juice. Because people say, oh, if you can have fruit juice. And I'm like, no, that's just liquid sugar for me. I can't do it. I'll eat the fruit. It has oh, less I'm of so glad that you said that. Because the, yeah. the juice is not my friend, and, the, and everyone wants to juice. Well, let's put some orange juice in there, and then we're going to put some raspberries, and we're going to put blueberries, and so much fruit. And, oh, isn't right. that healthy? And I, I thought, this is not healthy for me. I don't right. know. I, I, you know, I've been saying that for years, but now that we know it's not really healthy in the way of sugars for people uh, outside of diabetes, but really I, I would never, I didn't want that. I couldn't have that. Now, if I had low blood sugar, you know, you'd have something like that. You could to bring up your sugars, but keep in mind, you know, for listeners, if you had a small one, I wouldn't be able to drink the whole thing without going the other way, going from a low blood right. sugar to a high blood sugar. So what right. is that doing? It shows up in me. It shows up in me because I have to artificially give my insulin. But people that produce their own insulin, they're not aware of it because it's not showing up in the same way for them. You're absolutely right. And, and I, I tell everybody, who those of you who are not diabetic really should not have fruit juice in the refrigerator at all. And those of you who are diabetic, I would have some in there. And it really is, in case of emergency, break glass. It should not be a go-to for sure. Right. And that's, they're useful. I take them, you know, if I'm, if I'm out walking around because juice boxes are light. I mean, you know, I can take right. them to the gym. They're light. It's convenient and it's needed. It, meaning if I do need them, which I don't always, right. but I have them at Absolutely. hand. The, but the, really at the end of the day, um, I don't have juice in the fridge. I used to many years ago thinking it was um, okay for those of us that weren't, you know, in my home that aren't diabetic. But when it comes to muffins and people say, oh, I'm going to put juice in the muffins and make them all healthy. Well, there's a whole lot wrong with those muffins to begin with. Putting that little bit of juice is not going to reverse it. And yes, it's a better choice of sugar. But overall, it's just not a good thing, period. 
Yes, I completely agree with you. Oh, and I'd love to have this conversation. People who start to choose uh, wheat bread over white because it is a healthier source. It is, I'm, I'm afraid they're um, not doing themselves any favors. Uh, there is some sugar in there and some carbohydrates that very quickly uh, get converted into uh, glucose in the blood. And then, of course, the wheat gets broken down a little bit later uh, and gives you another spike. So, um, you know, if you're going to eat bread, eat sourdough. That's the, that's the best. Believe it or not, wheat is the worst. <laughs> Well, I would believe that, but sourdough is better than, I didn't know sourdough was better than uh, wheat bread or white bread. Yeah, because it's fermented. There's a portion of it that's fermented. I mean, if you can avoid it completely, hey, God bless, but I know some of us can't. And so if you have the choice, if you're at at the counter and they ask you, um, if you're avoiding white bread because you you think the wheat is healthier, I'm afraid it's, it's not. So sour bread would be a better choice. I, I try to cut wheat out of my diet for, Good for you. two different reasons, sugar being one. I, I just find it really affects my sugar. It takes away from other things that I would rather be eating, although I, I, I was a bread lover at one time. And the other thing is inflammation. Right. Absolutely. It, Absolutely. You know, dairy and wheat have are uh, recently definitely not my friends when it comes to inflammation. And I was in an accident. So I'm really trying to keep the inflammation down in a natural way. And I, I am. I have uh, really been able to manage myself quite well by cutting this out. But that brings us kind of back around to probiotics. And I see this belly dancer on a North American commercial that loves swinging her hips and I belly dance. So I like to watch that because I'm one of those girls and, uh, and they're talking about yogurt, which sounds just awesome, doesn't it? And it's going to help your digestive and they, they kind of blur out your, your, you know, midsection there and they say, eat yogurt. But I, I find when I eat yogurt, uh, and it's low in sugar and I eat the Greek yogurt and I, eat, um, you know, I eat in a healthy way. It still affects my body when it comes to pain and inflammation. So how would we get probiotics without eating this? I don't know any other way to get them. I see it in bread and I'm not eating bread. I see it in yogurt and I'm not eating yogurt. Right. So there's a number of different sources of probiotics. Anything that is, you know, again, where I'm going to go back to, excuse me, organic vegetables and things like that, things that aren't necessarily peppered with pesticides, they actually... When you when you pick up a, a, a vegetable, you know a cucumber or a pepper or a tomato, it has probiotics right on them if they haven't been again doused with with pesticides. So just your regular vegetables have some degree of them. You can take uh, probiotics as a supplement. One of the best sources uh, is. Uh, fermented vegetables. Now, you know, we're going back, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years and then beyond when we were farming uh, and we couldn't get, you know, truckloads of uh, food from South America during the winter. uh, Our ancestors would take um, the produce that we had out in the field and uh, cut them up with what we didn't eat, cut them up, put them into jars and pickle them. And they would eat them during the winter. And it was a phenomenal way of replenishing the natural probiotics in our, uh, in our gut flora uh, and for the rest of our immune system. We don't do that anymore. So you, you can see just these 
these uh, changes in our diet that make things, quote-unquote, um, more convenient. Aside from the processed foods, the, the lack of uh, pickling has really created some, some issues for us. Well, but that's funny. what I would recommend. Uh, that's a good thing to know. Um, I, sometimes I actually crave um, sauerkraut and pickles, one or the mm-hmm. other, and I, I need it. And, and I'll have yeah. to go, and I keep it at hand because I know I, I'm like this sometimes. And I'll just eat that, which sounds just terrible to some people. Well, why would you just eat sauerkraut? Because I need it. For some reason, my body wants it, and I have to eat it. Yeah, you're real in tune, which is fantastic. Yeah, no, it's very healthy for you. And you're right. When it comes to, so a lot of us, I would, I unfortunately, I would say a vast majority of us have some degree of um, those sensitivities that we have to dairy, um, those sensitivities that we have um, for eggs, uh, for nuts, for strawberries, for, you know, the list can go on and on. Those are kind of like the typical ones, um, shellfish. The consistency between all of these things are low molecular weight proteins. So, so why is that uh, creating uh, sensitivity or inflammation? So if you have leaky gut and you have small molecular weight proteins, those can more freely and easily pass through the gut, get recognized by the immune system, and set off an immune reaction. That's why, uh, and it's slow and it's subtle, so people don't always uh, feel inflammation after eating dairy. If they go off it for an extended period of time and go back on, all of a sudden they feel terrible. And they think, oh, I must have, you know, lost my ability to digest. No, you never had it. It wasn't that you lost the ability to digest it. It's that um, your the in chronic inflammation that you had before has gone away, and now you feel it come back. Really, so a very important point. Now, what about when it came when it comes to cheese? I've heard that if you're going to have a little bit, because cheese is probably the hardest thing for me to give up. Um, a raw cheese or a goat cheese or um, oh, yeah. sheep would be far better than, you know, your, well, your regular cheese from a cheese counter, you know, and I right. like cheese. I, I love brie. I love it all, but there are yeah. better choices. And I've recently seen a sheep brie. Now, what would you yeah. think of something like that? And I don't mean every day. Yeah. Oh yeah. In moderation with everything. Right. Um, I'm a I'm a huge proponent of uh, of cheese uh, again moderation, but it, it really should be raw and it and it needs to be clean. Um, and what I mean by clean is uh, pesticides, hormones, uh, antibiotics, that kind of stuff. And that can sometimes be somewhat of a challenge to figure out. You know, what is is it clean? Where's the source and all that? You have to ask us some questions. But the raw piece of it is really important because you are getting the probiotics, the bacteria from those sources, but if it gets sterilized, you sort of defeated a lot of the purpose. So that's that's sort of my take on cheese. So we've talked about the importance of getting organic sources of fruits and vegetables and not having GMO foods in our diet. Now what about the fats? Oh, boy, what an important topic to hit. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I know there's a lot of talk out there of, of uh, avocado and coconut and red palm and you know those are really the best ones um, when we talk about 
fats, we, we need to really be focused in on like a laser beam on uh, what they call MCT fats, which are medium chain triglycerides. These are your omega-3s. You know how your doctor says, well, you really ought to be taking a fish oil. The issue is, is that our diet, uh, our typical diet, has, uh, is very high in omega-6. Uh, and that's fine. We need those. But if it's out of balance with omega-3s, that becomes a real problem. And that actually sparks inflammation and high cholesterol and higher blood pressure and so forth. It's, it's a cascade. So what you need to be focused on are these uh, medium-chain fatty acids, these omega-3s. You can get them from fish oil, um, cook and uh, uh, ingest uh, coconut oils, red palm, avocado, those are excellent sources. The sources that you want to stay away from are vegetable oils. Um, you know, the, the problem is, is that they are, they go through the process, it's the processing that damages them. Um, beyond the point at which, um, you know, they don't have a whole lot of medium chain, uh, fatty acids. Coconut oil and avocado and red palm are chock full of omega-3s and medium chain, which is one of the reasons why you can cook with them because they have a, um, a greater tolerance for heat. They have a, uh, a higher smoke point, which is what, they, what a chef would say. So, and one of the other people always comment, well, can I have olive oil? Olive oil is fantastic. The problem with olive oil is if it's virgin, you can't cook with it because above about 130, 135 degrees, it starts going um, uh, it starts to oxidize. And so we talk about antioxidants being good. Pro-oxidants obviously are bad. So right. it becomes uh, basically a toxin. So great for salads. You want to put it on something cold. You want the other thing that you want to be aware of is olive oil in the grocery store is the one product, the number one product for adulteration, meaning that olive oil has sunflower oil, has canola oil in it, you really have to go for um, premium oils, and how are you going to figure out what the difference is? You've got to read the reviews. The other way you do it is you can stick it in your refrigerator, and the less um, solids you see in your olive oil after putting it into the refrigerator for a day, the higher... Um, um, the, the more olive oil is in there, the more beneficial uh, medium-chain uh, uh, triglycerides are in there. What about, the less adulterated it is. What about sesame seed oil or pumpkin seed oil? What about things like that, the seedy oils, walnut? Yep. Um, those are a little bit more difficult to classify, uh, and the reason is is that there are certain sources of, of those oils that don't go through a high degree of processing, and if they don't go through a high degree of processing, they're healthier for you. The problem is is that uh, when they're done in bulk, uh, when they're done by the big agro companies, they consistently go through a high heat process. They um, introduce other uh, sometimes petrol-based chemicals in order to clean certain um, components out of it, and then what you're left with is this, you know, um, I mean, you might as well be drinking uh, motor oil at that point. Um, now, I'm not saying that they're all like that. Again, you really need to know the source. I stay away from them because I just don't know enough about those uh, oils uh, and the companies that make them and the processes that go on behind the scenes. 
So it's really important, you're saying, to watch the temperature, especially with olive oil. But red palm, the avocado, and what was the other? I've, I've tried to keep a little list here as we were speaking. Oh, There's yeah. One more. Uh, red palm oil. Red palm oil, uh, and I know some of <laughs> if you if you go out, if you've tried it, I don't know, the Dr. Oz has gone on and said, look, red palm oil is very healthy, and it is. It's extremely healthy for you. The problem is it doesn't taste very good. Um, you know, we, for instance, we make a high concentration tocotrienol red palm uh, in a soft gel so you don't have to taste it. Um, it's a very difficult thing to sort of uh, cook with. Um, so you probably want to stay with your coconut oils uh, and not a virgin olive oil, but an olive oil straight. Um, you know, those, those are typically the best ones. And not virgin, but just straight on a good source of yeah, olive oil. Yeah, and they're hard to find. Cold yeah, press, exactly. probably. Yes, always. Yeah, so um, virgin olive oil, dangerous at high temperatures. Olive oil, regular, less dangerous. It's because they've stripped out some of the constituents that stabilize the oil. So uh, it, it makes it a little easier to cook with it without turning you know, the things rancid and oxidizing the oil. Um, so that, that would be my recommendation. And these healthy oh. fats are going to help support the liver. What about if we want butter? Absolutely. Absolutely. So <laughs> every time you bring something up, you're, you're triggering something, which is very important. Um, so this whole conversation about fats, you know, way, this happened way back in the 70s. There was a research um, a paper that was done in Europe. Uh, I want to say it was done in either Switzerland or, or Sweden. I always mix those two countries up. Um, and essentially what came out of it was they found a high correlation between cholesterol and heart disease with a high-fat diet. Now, they were including in this high-fat diet all kinds of saturated, unsaturated, long-chain, short-chain, medium-chain fatty acids. So, yeah, it's going to cause all kinds of havoc. But what they did was they said fats bad. Reduce fats at all costs. Well, what's the majority of the cells in your body? What are they made of? And what do they require for growth? Fat. What is your brain? If you take out the liquid in your brain, what is the highest concentration component in your brain? Fat. So, so to go to a low-fat diet is extremely detrimental. So, but we have to choose our fats wisely. Um, butter, excellent. Use it all the time. Um, you know, make sure again that it's coming from a local farm and it's not adulterated. It doesn't have a zillion different ingredients because it doesn't need to. Um, the other thing, I I get uh, animal fat, um, and the fattier the steak, the better. Has to be clean. Has to be clean. No corn-fed stuff. No antibiotics. No hormones. Very, very important. So and you said the fattier, the better. I'm laughing. Now, I buy my meat um, that is grass-fed, and it doesn't have any hormones or antibiotics. I've been doing that for quite some time. That's my chicken mm -hmm. and my beef. So Perfect. having said that, though, why the fattiest piece of meat? Because we've been told not to do that. I know it. I know it. And the the younger the, the younger uh, physicians and more progressive younger physicians they are well aware and they've read the studies and they know this 
the older physicians, it's like they haven't picked up a book in the last, you know, 10 years. They're not on top of this. And if you get an old physician, he's going to say, low-fat diet, lean meat. That's wrong. It's wrong, and we've known it to be wrong for the last decade. Um, so your entire body, the uh, evolution of, of our metabolism for the last, you know, 100,000 years has been predicated on a high-fat diet. It's only recently that we've got away from that. So 100 years ago, we were ingesting about 110 uh, pounds of uh, sugar per person per year. Now we're up to 120. Okay, So we're completely changing everything. So our main source of energy now is carbs and sugar, whereas before it was fats and protein. Our bodies optimally operate with fats and protein. Now, if you want to lose weight, this seems counterproductive. But it's true, this is the basis for Atkins and Atkins-type diets. Now, the Atkins diet ends up um, recommending a, an overboard of fats and not necessarily promoting healthy fats all the time and removal of important things like fruits and vegetables uh, in some cases. So I don't promote that. But uh, diets that are high-fat, high-protein are... Uh, the diets that we ought to be operating on because when you're on a sugar diet or a carb diet, what do you get? You get spikes and you get this glucose revolving cycle that has to be moderated by the liver. It's not where we want to be. When we're in a ketogenic state, in other words, we're using fats ingested for our uh, energy or prime energy source, it's a very flat, consistent energy. You do not get lulls. You fatigued in the mid-mornings and mid-afternoons, that's the way we were supposed to operate. And uh, as a result, if there are excess fats anywhere in the body, because you're already in a ketogenic state, if you, um, if, if you haven't eaten in a while and you haven't taken those uh, fats and proteins in, it will go after other fats in your, in your body. Brown fat, white fat, won't matter. So you end up losing weight because you're eating fats. Um, now, of course, this is, uh, you know, predicated on uh, what your caloric intake is and how much exercise you're getting and so forth. But this is the optimum diet for people. Isn't that funny? It, because I was actually taught that if we were hungry, and I mean, they, this is what they taught us when we were very young when I was diagnosed, um, that if you're hungry, eat protein, have some extra fat. If you need extra food eat fat and protein. And they would tell us that right. because we had to watch our sugars. Right? So they said, right. you want to keep that sugar happy? If it's a good sugar, keep that pumping. And if you're hungry, just have that fat and that protein because that'll keep that sugar that way for a longer period of time. That is perfect. This, yeah. So elegant in the logic back then. And it was very simple. Now, the diets weren't easy because... They weren't easy because people didn't know as much about food and there was a lot of, uh, you know, uh, problems around medication, meaning that we actually had to feed our diabetes and not our body in the way that you took one injection a day and so you really had to time your meals properly. Your peak times of insulin had to be met with food. And so you didn't have a right. lot of freedom around these things. And sometimes you're a little hungrier than others. Well, it made it very difficult because we didn't have the freedom with our medications that we do now. Now that we have all this freedom with our medications and timing and types and so on, that old way of the diet would be probably much better in some cases. Absolutely. 
again, you know, we this, the entire the entire Western world switched based upon this faulty study that was done back in the seventies. Things that we can do to support our liver. So the right. warm water with so, lemon. Yep, uh, bone broth. Right. Uh, the gelatin. Right. Um, the different types of um, supplements that we had talked about. Eating clean, having a fat-based diet, clean fats, the right fats, right? Um, probiotics, um, fermented uh, vegetables, uh, steering clear of, uh, of sugars. And by doing that, you can do two, uh, two things by reducing cravings, get rid of the candida and eat sour foods. Those are the things that you can do, you know, and avoiding GMOs and so forth. Those are the things that you can do to increase health. Okay, and really support our livers and strong livers. Now, you have some supplements yeah. you work with. Um, is there anything yeah. that we could go to on the shelf that would be helpful without having to be necessarily steered by a physician? <laughs> or do right. we have to be? Like, should they be saying, okay, you need, because of your uh, fatty liver disease, you need to take ABC? Is there something we could do just to overall support our liver with supplements? Yeah, uh, we make a uh, we make sort of our flagship product is called Hepatavin, and that has it has got eight ingredients in it, half of which are dedicated to repairing leaky gut, and the other half are dedicated to this phase two um, detoxification process within the liver. If you can't find that product on the shelf, you know uh, it's very important to find liver supplements that have uh, psilocybin as opposed to milk thistle because uh, there are varying degrees of the active uh, in there and it needs to be clean. Um, there should be some other methylating uh, ingredients in there as well, like the MSM, like SAMe, like glutathione, like uh, a choline or a phosphatidylcholine. Those are really important. And you don't necessarily have to have or be diagnosed with uh, liver disease to reap the benefits of being able to remove toxins from your liver and to make it sort of a, a regular steady maintenance type of thing. And is there any measurement? I guess that would come on the bottle. Does it go by your weight uh, on how much you would take of this? It's just maintenance? Yeah, so um, on our products, uh, they're developed for uh, individuals that are in a disease state, and they recommend, uh, you know, four capsules a day, two in the morning, two at night. But um, for individuals who are looking to, to maintain, you know, two at night are typically it. Um, if you are going out to the health food store and you need to find one, I would say, the, again, the isolated psilocybin uh, or the active ingredient in there should be around 1,000 milligrams. Take about 1,000 milligrams of that. Um, you know, to 1500, you, you'll be in pretty good shape. That's great. Now, where do we find your products? Yep. So, uh, you can purchase the products on, um, our website, which is, uh, livermedic.com. Um, we're also on, uh, on Amazon as well. Well, I have to thank you for joining me today. This has been so insightful, um, and great tips on how to take care of our liver and our gut. Ask your doctor for a liver test. Catching liver disease in early state can be a relatively easy thing to deal with. Diet is crucial. And there are supplements that you can take. Having a healthy liver helps your overall health, 
better blood sugars and management of your diabetes, and perhaps even avoiding type 2 diabetes altogether. Always consult your doctor first before making any changes in your diet or taking any supplements. If you have any questions about today's episode, please email me, Anita, at anitacoach.ca, and follow me on Twitter, at Anita Westlake.